Welcome back to our conversation with David Reardon. We continue to look in depth at what is threatening us as a civilization and a culture and a political system. And if you care, stick with us because we dig into it even more deeply. Welcome to Deep Transformation, Self, Society, Spirit, life-enhancing, paradigm-rattling conversations with cutting-edge thinkers, contemplatives, and activists with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. I want to come back to the to the story that we touched on, but I think I think I'm sure you have much more to say, and John was very passionate about, and that is, you know, is our democracy threatened? Can you tell us about you know what's happening with that, and where is that going, and anything anything else you'd like to say about? It? Well, like I said, we we were looking at a, at a much broader landscape, which was the stories we're telling about the now and the future across mm-hmm. all these categories politics, economics, climate change, whatever, right? That was all contributing to where we were headed, and that's what we were interested in, right? Is there a way to develop an alternative narrative that counters this dystopian narrative that we seem so in love with? That when you ask people, they go, oh, yeah, it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better, whatever that means, right? That is the majority opinion at the moment, in all ages, by the way. You know, David, I was going to say with climate change, and I live in Louisiana right now in a very conservative area. I'm no longer in the Bay Area or Berkeley or San Francisco or Boulder. I'm in a very conservative area. And the majority of people think that climate change is a lie, mm-hmm. even though, I mean, in our lifetime, we can see that the weather patterns changing. Or if, if it's true, humans have nothing to do with it. And that it's really a conspiracy on the left to have government control more things because that's really, when you think about it, that's about the only thing that can really, you know, solve it in a big way is governments. If if uh, we've identified the causes and they think it's a conspiracy to lose our freedom. And they, I've had people uh, when I'm traveling through the country, I mentioned off, offhand of climate change and they get angry. You know, that's not what they said in church, you know, and, and it, it's 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 hard stuff. It is. And so it becomes a part of the fabric, right? So let's go back to your question, Roger, about democracy. And as I said, for us, it was about a year ago where we just kept seeing this story surface with serious questions about whether our democratic institutions, as they had since the Civil War, right? Because we did have a Civil War and that all got blown up and could have gone a different way, but it didn't. The nation endured. And then from that point on, We had a system that we believed was going to be able to counter whatever challenges came up, right? So here's an example. When you look at stories, right, generally what has happened since the the second sort of war, regardless of all the challenges that we faced, and we certainly, for those of us that are boomer generation, we can say Vietnam War, civil rights, environmental rights, all of that stuff that was part of our coming of age were huge issues. I mean, we had four major political candidates assassinated within five years. We had students being shot on campuses by the National Guard, right? 
we had marchers in the South just disappearing into the landfill, right? I mean, this was this was horrific stuff. But as I said, I don't think there was ever a question in our minds about, does that really challenge democracy? We're just trying to get it back to a more balanced story. So when you look at, again, the majority of the Americans and where do they live in terms of their orienting stories, they live in this middle, which is about 65 to 70%. And that has a moderate conservative element, an independent element, and a moderate liberal element, right? And generally, you can make you can generally, when we looked at this, you can generally make the argument that since the Civil War, whatever debates we were having about whatever, about going forward, and these were not insignificant debates. I mean, they got heated, as you can imagine, right? But they were happening within what they call the guardrails. They were happening within the guardrails of moderate conservative thought and moderate liberal thought. And you go, well, what's left out of that? Well, the extremes on both sides. Were, uh, were out on the fringes and always there, but they were not driving the mainstream conversation. So from a political standpoint, we saw this ebb and flow, right? So if you look at, say, Carter, you know, who comes in and surprisingly gets elected because nobody expected him to be, but because of some of the things that he did and didn't do, Ronald Reagan gets elected in 1980, and that is the beginning in most people's story about where this conservative movement tried to take this into a viewpoint that was not the majority of, you know, of Americans. But basically what we see is it ebbed and flowed, right? So Reagan was president for eight years. And then there was a reaction from the voters saying, okay, so I like some of what you did, but, but I don't like some of the things the other did. So we're going to give the liberals a chance, right? And so they elected Bill Clinton and Bill Clinton had his eight years with all the things he did. And then, so it just ebbed and flowed. And so where you saw it in Congress, in the Supreme Court as well, because that's something that's also changed, but how the Supreme Court was made up and of which point of view and Congress, it would ebb and flow, but it was always within these guardrails, right? That even though as progressives, we could violently disagree with even moderate conservative thought, you know, like Reaganomics or something, right? It was within the guardrails of, of what we considered to be reasonable conversation that was pushing this thing forward. And oh, by the way, most of that conversation until five to six years ago was based on a common set of facts. So we argued, sometimes heatedly, sometimes violently, but we were basically telling stories from a common set of facts, which we don't do anymore, which is part of the uncertainty that we experience at the moment. So what happened? Well, for those of us that started looking at this, we said there is a strong belief, and there still is, by the way, in our narrative analysis, that a majority of Americans still believe that the system, the way it's set up, is sufficient to basically protect us from extremes on both sides of the political equation. So they say, you can see where it started to lean toward one way or the other, too liberal, too conservative. The next election, voters adjusted that. And you can't kind of came back to the middle. It's a big story. So I'll just say one simple thing about what we said. All right. So are we imagining this, that democracy is in trouble? Because, you know, we've had problems before. This has gone back and forth between points of view we may agree or disagree with. But here, here was the difference. 
one of the major parties, which happened to be the MAGA Republicans in this particular case. And the reason why I use MAGA is the Republican Party has gone through an evolution from what it was to what it is now, which generally we so we always say this is not actually real conservative thought. This is something else. Right. But this one party suddenly started telling the story that if they didn't win the election, then it was fraudulent. We had never had a major party. We'd had individuals do that before, right? Or, you know, fringe elements on the left or the right saying these elections are bogus or they're fixed or whatever. We had never had a major party basically story B, if we don't win, then it's fraudulent. We never had that. And, and for most observers, that blew through the guardrail on the right and then went into extreme, which then gets more amplified by social media, bringing these fringe, you know, conspiracy story, whatever you want to call that, into the mainstream. They were always there. I mean, you guys remember, I mean, you could always go find, you know, John Bircher sites or, you know, socialist sites, and they had, you know, bizarre sort of, you know, ideas about where it should go. The difference is, and we can go into this in more detail if you want, but social media now has brought those extremes into the mainstream and now they dominate the mainstream. So we have this polarization that we keep talking about. So is your contention that the guardrails are no longer in place? Or you mentioned getting blown blown down on the right side of the spectrum. Is Are there guardrails? Is that still working for us? Well, that's that's a good question, John. And so every election, we ask it again. We're not far enough away from the midterms to be able to analyze that sufficiently. One of the good things, it appears, although there may be more of this coming, is that out of the 250 election deniers, right, which is the MAGA story that basically said that Biden was not legitimately elected, who are running for office now in the midterm, and this included governors, senators, secretaries of state, attorney generals, right? The majority of them lost, and they particularly lost in the battleground states. So you'll see in Arizona, as an example, although one race is still out, the attorney general, they had a whole slate, starting with the governor, the one guy running for Senate, secretary of state was a guy that was at the insurrection on January 6th, right? They had a whole, and they all lost. Not by much, but they all lost, right? So so to a certain extent, we, we still are wondering whether, okay, so did it, does it seem that the midterms adjusted this and brought us back on course? And I think that the verdict is still out on that based on our narrative analysis. And what it's going to depend on, I'll put this simply, not because people won't understand it, but just because it's a very complex subject. Already what we see, what we think is going to depend on whether this is a realignment back to those guardrails so that conversation happens within a healthy perspective rather than the extremes on both sides is going to depend on what each party, both the Democrats and the Republicans, learn from this last election. So I'll, I'll just give you a quick example. If Democrats feel that they were vindicated and thus they're not going to change their story as we head into 2024, they're going to say, see, we were able to convince just enough of the American public that our, our, you know, our concerns about abortion, about the economy, about whatever, right, climate change, that, and we won. 
they didn't, but they, that was the feeling because it all depends on your expectations. If you were expecting a red wave and you didn't get it, you feel good about that. Democrats did feel and still do about it that night, but we're starting to go, yeah, but look at what's happening now. Well, are the Republicans going to change their story? And right now that is totally up in the air. And, and it was up in the air last night as, as Trump announced that he's running for president again, because you hear the MAGA narrative, again, still the dominant narrative. And we're going to see if the Republicans this time are going to step away from him and try to find somebody more moderate. Right? I mean, so so it's 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 up in the air about whether we're going to remain polarized with one side or the other, barely winning the next election. And are both parties going to accept the results? And, and even though in the midterms, one of the things that we've already seen is that by and large, the anticipated fervor or distortion around voting didn't happen, right? There was all these stories from the progressive side that the MAGA Republicans were going to, which they did to a certain extent, showed up at, at, at voting places and intimidated voters, right? You know, they came dressed in their military garb or whatever. By and large, that didn't happen, which is a good thing, right? By and large, people that lost generally have accepted that loss. Although we still see some of the major candidates that lost still trying to figure out whether they're going to accept it or whether they're going to challenge it, right? So we're still we're still in this question about, are we back within these guardrails? And so now we can have a very heated dramatic conversation based on facts about the way forward, which both parties have a part to play in that? Or are we going to then for the next two years, basically still sit in this story wondering whether one party or the other is going to accept the results of the next presidential election, which is in 2024? Yeah. That makes sense? Yeah, yeah, very much so. And it's, it's very important and very illuminating. So thank you, David. And as I look for a common theme here, putting in psychological terms, it seems like what's called the Overton window of our culture has expanded. The Overton window, as I understand it, being the, the range of ideas and values that are accepted, acceptable to have a, to discuss in, in polite society. And somehow there's just been a huge expansion of what what is is allowed and even dominating acceptable conversation, including things, you know, a, a degree of mean-spiritedness, of dehumanization, of and of unethical behavior that just seems, at least from, you know, seems like it, there's more latitude for, for and, and also, for, very importantly, for, quotes, alternative facts and and conspiracy theories, et cetera. Love to hear you comment on that. Well, as I say, the jury's out. Right? Okay. And and it, and it will depend on, which what we're not going to know right away, but basically the presidential election, which is in two years, started the day after the midterms. Right? Yeah. That's why Trump has announced. That's why there's so much fervor around, is Biden going to run again? And if neither one of those people are going to run again, which when you look at the polls, 
as much as you can believe them, because that was another issue in the midterms. The polls were mostly wrong again, and but for a different reason than before. I can go into what we saw about that. But ultimately, the polls were not giving us a, 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 a correct result. So people were surprised, you know, that night, like they were surprised in 2016 that Trump won. That's not what the polls said, right? Hillary was supposed to win. Well, she didn't, right? So the question will be, again, will both parties, and I just say that sort of as blocks, right? They're also individuals within those parties. I mean, not all Republicans are the same and not all Democrats are the same. There are, uh, you know, extreme wings in both parties, right? What are they going to learn about this midterm result? What did the American people say to both of them? And one of the sort of emerging themes when you look at particularly why the Republicans lost in the key battleground states is that it had to do with the quality of the candidates that they had put forward. And mostly those were election deniers, right? Mostly. And they were preaching this MAGA story, which starts with Trump, about if they didn't win, then there had to be fraud, that the Democrats were corrupt beyond belief, whatever, right? They all lost, not by a lot, but they but they lost. And, and one of the initial reactions to that, and those of us that look at the narrative, is that the voters are saying, don't keep giving us these extremes, right? Give us more moderate candidates. We want to get on with the considerable challenges that we face and stop all of this culture war, you know, sniping at each other, right? And we want to get to work and go solve the problems. Now, that seems to be what the voters said because they didn't give the MAGA you know, Republicans a red wave, which was anticipated that was, was going to happen for a variety of reasons. They didn't do that. They basically got rid of the election deniers and said, no, we're not going there. We want more reasonable candidates, right? And we'll see. So are the, are the Republicans going to learn about that? Or certainly Trump is not a reasonable candidate. But neither is DeSantis, as we now pick the current flavor of the week about who's popular on that side of the aisle. And then when you look at the Democrats, if Biden doesn't run, then what? <laughs> right? Who else? I mean, you know, Newsom in California, which is the governor, has done some interesting things in the midterms where he challenged the governors in Texas and in Georgia and Florida. Um, and we want to see that energy. We like to see that young energy saying, you know, this is baloney what you guys are trying to do. But we'll see. We don't know. I mean, whether Biden is is physically going to be able and mentally be able, capable to be president at his age, and whether he really wants to, and whether there's you know whether there's a feeling in the Democratic Party that they need to go to new blood, right? As a case case maybe. David, can can I ask you a question? And it kind of gets back to the story. And I puzzled about this: the whole idea of MAGA, right? Make America great again. Well, it's looking back at the past, and there's an assumption that America used to be great. And it's no longer great now. So yeah. do you have any idea to what part of our story and our history is appealing to these people that feel so strongly about, yeah, make it great again? Was it right after we won World War II? Was it in the 60s when the economy was expanding? Was it when we had slaves, you know, in a large part of the United States? What what part is that? And I think if we could understand that, maybe we could help to uh, speak in a language that these people could uh, relate to. Yeah. The way we would frame the story, you know, based on the analysis that we do, John, and again, this this is 
<laughs> every day it it tends to evolve and moderate itself. And there are surprises. Obviously, there were surprises about this election, which still haven't played out. I don't think it's so much, I mean, at least from our standpoint, from a narrative standpoint, even though it has themes about let's go back to the so-called golden era of America, right? So as an example, you would see just based on statistics, after the Second World War, there was a giant explosion of the middle class, right? That hadn't been there before. America was the last man standing after the Second World War. We did not have the war damage that everybody else had. So we were able to crank it up and 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 you know there were decisions made let's make this a consumer a wildly consumer environment we're going to sell all this stuff to people and suddenly people that had been lower middle class were buying two cars and buying a house in the suburbs and you know all of that because they were making good wages in whatever jobs they had in the factories or you know I, i'm being this is very general but enough to have a conversation about and so the 50s, as much as us boomers look back on the 50s and say, well, we, we reacted against the boringness of that, right? That, our, that it was stayed, that it was, my mother used to say, I don't know why I did all those things. It just seemed to be that that was, I, I was concerned that we would look bad to the neighbors if I didn't dress you a particular way. And I'm going, she said, of course, that was silly. But at the time, it was powerful, Right. So we looked at that and we said, we want to just crack that whole thing, which we did. We were their worst nightmare. We just cracked it all and said, no, that's not the way we want to live. It's stable, but it's boring. And it doesn't get to half of the things that we think should be included in the American experiment, which is <laughs> for, for openers, women and, and you know people of color, right? That weren't included in the Make America Great. It was mostly a white nationalist Christian-driven narrative, right? So, so it's not so much about, I think, not so much about going back to that time, but that it's feeling in the moment. And this is what Trump brilliantly tied into, regardless of what you think about whether he's unstable or whatever. He brilliantly tied into the unease within white culture, mostly Again, don't hold me completely accountable, but mostly non-college educated, mostly working class people, which had been solid middle class, right? But now we're suffering because their jobs are going overseas. Take your pick, right? And what he tied into was that when he said, make America great again, again, we like we said earlier, for who? And what he you know, basically promoted and appealed to was that we want to go back to when you, you white people, were driving the culture and making all the decisions. And the problem with this is we know the demographics of the United States have changed since then, right? And we are now really a multicultural nation as a result of all the immigration, you know, take your pick which group and all the rest of it. And so if you're saying, well, democracy should apply to all Americans, it has to be a multicultural democracy from a progressive standpoint of view. They're saying, postmodern, we should include all these people, which haven't been included before, by the way. So those are the two competing stories. And so, you know, ultimately what Trump and that group is appealing to is you've been left out and there is a certain truth to that story, right? 
In 2018, I was involved in a, in a campaign called, called Vote Common Good. And these were progressive evangelicals who I didn't even know existed before I found them. And they decided they were going to do a bus tour, 50 you know, red states. And they were convinced that the evangelical vote that was the common knowledge was it was all going to the Trump folks, right? The fundamentalist evangelical vote, that there was 5% of those evangelicals that were very uncomfortable with what the fundamentalist Christians were suggesting, which is Christianity should be the national state religion, as an example, right? And they thought if they could turn that 5% to, for the first time, vote for Democrats just in that election, that they could make a difference, right? So as a result, we were on this bus tour in red states. And like always, if you actually go out and talk to the people, it opens your eyes, right? So I remember sitting, you know, around a camp or something, you know, in these rural areas with good-hearted solid of the earth people that had voted for Trump in 2016. And we got into a conversation about why that was and all the rest of it. And it was not the polarized conversation is how could you? It was just that, you know what? So what was it? And part of it was Hillary. Part of it was they just couldn't buy her. And that was a problem of candidates. But mostly they would say to me, David, (laughs) as much as you say, you can't imagine living in this white nationalist, you know, orientation in terms of a narrative. We can equally, we cannot imagine living in your progressive narrative. And they would then go to the just this, the, the, the little things that are easy to pick off. We can't imagine having non-gender bathrooms. That's crazy, right? As an example. We can't imagine teaching gender and sex education to elementary school kids in the third grade. That gender is a choice, basically. We can't imagine, right? And so, so our reaction is, is that we can't imagine living in your America as, as the one you want as much as you can't imagine the one we're living in. And that's fair. I mean, that's, that's fair, right? And ultimately, you know, when you took all the rhetoric away, you know, they were people trying to make sense of some story that made sense to them, but they felt left out. They felt that Trump was going to fight for them, right, against, in quotes, the establishment, right, or whatever that was, or the mainstream media, which they love to call, you know, the fake news media, when Fox, which is their basic, you know, state-run television has bigger audiences than CNN and NBC combined. They always leave that out, right? It's the liberal media. And you go, yeah, that's half of the media system in the country, right? So that, so it was, I came back from that going, you know, not about Trump. They have a point. And what is it that we're doing as progressives? And I don't mean Democrats, but just people that are interested in, in a more progressive, inclusive thing. What are we, what are we saying to them that so frightens them, Right. Well, could we say could we say it differently? Could we have a different conversation about that they actually felt included rather than excluded? Because as long as they feel excluded, they're going to be susceptible to someone like a strong man like Trump coming along and saying, "Just give me your loyalty and I'll fix this," which is what basically what Trump's story is. Right? 
And, and as developmentalists are intricately informed people, we realize at traditional level, people are ethnocentric. So everybody who gets to modernism or postmodern or post-postmodernism goes through a phase when you're ethnocentric, which basically means you prefer people like you over people that are different than you. Right. And how can we, uh, I'm not sure just saying you're really bad, 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 bad. You shouldn't be ethnocentric, really be open-minded. And I, 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 I don't think that's going to work. It just makes people push from ethnocentric into racist because they get angry, Right. Well, there's something else too, John, that that I wanted to bring up, and this has been my experience on the progressive side of the aisle as I've developed it as we developed Vital Sign. So originally, I took this idea that we every two weeks you could you could basically see based on our narrative analysis of which way we were headed. And the easiest way to say it, right? And just like COVID, where you go to simple graphs right now, we didn't have those in the beginning. And it just simply says, here's how many cases there were in the day. And here's a seven day average. That doesn't tell me a lot of the detail, but it it gives me a sense of how careful I want to be when I go out. Right. So the vital signs, you know, meter was simply supposed to, you know, just give you that initial impression. This is where we see it based on the narratives that are being told by all sides. And if you want to find out more about why we think that is, and most importantly, what you can do about it, if you're uncomfortable, then that's a whole different thing. But this is just supposed to give you an indicator every two weeks that takes into account the full measure of the news, rather than just focusing on one story, like Roe v. Wade, right? That's a story in and of itself. But there's much more going on than just that, that is going to determine whether we have a democracy or not in this in this country. So- what was interesting to me is I ran into on the progressive side, this, and these are people I've known for a long time and have done all kinds of good work around what I call sort of the unify message, right? I mean, you heard Biden say this, you've certainly heard Obama say it, that the whole purpose is to unify. What they mean is to unify those folks that sit between those guardrails, right? 65 to 70% and just sort of say the other 30% is going to have feelings on the left and the right that are knocking it, but we're going to unify. And if we could just get people to talk together, if we could just get conservatives to talk to liberals, then they could find common ground. That has been the basic story of the progressive movement, or I would say for the last 10 years. So what challenged that was that when Trump was elected in 2016 and alarm bells were going off, in all of those exercises, some of which I participated in, was there... Was there anything coming out of those that that people actually then fully understood each other and decided to act together? And the answer was no. Right. Their problem was they could not get enough conservatives to come to these gatherings. Right. One and two, even the ones that came and that there was some kumbaya. You know, I don't mean to denigrate that. There was some good stuff that happened at those, you know, those gatherings. People did learn how to talk to each other and not demonize the other. But particularly, well, on both sides, but particularly on the MAGA side, when those folks went home and tried to talk to their constituents, <laughs> people just said, what are you talking about? We don't ever talk to those people, and we never will. And if that's what you're suggesting, we'll get somebody else, right? So the whole unification or this thing about if we could just talk about it, we would be fine. It just seems like from our standpoint, we've blown way by that idea and there needs to be other things that are brought into the mix because it just doesn't seem that that is going to be successful because of the extreme polarization, you know, that is 
uh, currently happening. Right? And what do you recommend, David? On your website and in your work, you you suggest there are a number <clears throat> of things uh, that can be done. So what what are they? What do you see? Well, where we start, Roger, is in this, and we didn't do this in the beginning. We've learned this, right? I mean, this this we stepped into this and said, let's see where this goes. And you know, maybe it'll be useful, maybe it won't. Turned out that a lot of people think it's useful. So we're still going, but this is what we learned. It's very easy to get down in the weeds in any of these conversations really quickly, right? So I'll use abortion as an example, right? So the abortion conversation obviously is heated. Uh, obviously, it played a part in both the 2020 and 2022 elections in terms of progressives holding the ground, right? Against the MAGA folks. But when you look at the abortion issue, right, and from our standpoint, from a narrative standpoint, and this is on both sides, this is both progressives, you know, people supporting the right to an abortion and people saying, no, you know, we don't want to offer that, is that still the stories mostly being told about it are all concentrated on when you would have an abortion. That's most of the argument, right? It's like, is it at one week? Is it at four weeks? Is it at 24 weeks? Right? Which, uh, right? And so there's all this conversation back and forth about, you know, you know, should women have a right to, you know, to do this? And, and if they do, then what's a reasonable approach to that? Right? Because that same majority believes that they should have a right, but within reason. They, they, they just can't go have an abortion at eight months when the child is fully, I mean, right? It's in the first trimester, mostly where that audience lands and says, no, at three months, <clears throat> even though it's early, that's a decision that should be up to you and not up to state officials, right? So that was that's, that's primarily where the abortion conversation, where you see it clash is all around that, right? From our standpoint, it misses the underlying story, which is, both sides, when they talk about whether it should be, whether life begins at conception, which is really the, the MAGA story, it begins at conception. So even though you're scraping, you know, 20 cells, I'll just be sort of, you know, over the top. That's a life, right? That's our belief. That's a life, right? Even though it doesn't look like a human, even though it can't exist outside the womb. At conception, that's when life starts. So if you kill that, you're killing babies. That's the argument on that side. The argument on the other side is that, well, no, it actually takes a while for it to become whatever. And they will make their arguments about why that's at 16 weeks versus 24 or whatever. The problem or the issue we see with both of them is that they both state their positions as if they're fact. And they're not. They're beliefs, right? There is, we do not know <laughs> whether human beings start at conception. We have no idea whether that actually is true or not. We don't know, we don't know that if we decide to have an abortion at 16 weeks, that that's not a person, right? As an example, these are belief systems, right? Which both sides are arguing. We believe that based on our beliefs, we don't want any abortion happening after conception. And the other side says, we want to leave it up to women at 16 to 24 weeks because we think that that's okay, right? So what's interesting about all that is that with Roe versus Wade in place, Wade versus for the last 50 years, right? 
that decision was left up to the individual and their belief system, right? Roe v. Wade did not say you have to have an abortion, right? Because if your belief was that life started at conception, of course, you're not going to have an abortion. You're not going to choose to do that, but you had the right to do that, right? Whereas women that said, no, it's, I have a right up to 16 weeks to do that for whatever reason, you know, then I'm going to, I'm, that's my belief, right, about it. So what happened? What happened with the Supreme Court ruling? The Supreme Court, basically, for all the reasons that they did, not only took the right away for the woman to choose, which had been in law for 50 years, right, constitutional law, but they basically said, it's okay for the law, which is now going to be state officials criminalizing abortion and those who try to help women have an abortion, where there's actually going to, you will be charged with crimes, felonies, put in prison, whatever, if you do that, right? Actually in law, based on a belief system, right? There is nothing more un-American about that, regardless of what you think about abortion, right? There's nothing more un-American than a minority belief system basically dictating to the majority, which we see in poll after poll after poll, that say women have a right to choose within reason. That's, that is so un-American. I mean, it's the reason why we separated from England to begin with. We did not want a minority, which was either a king or a small group of people, dictating to the majority of us how we should live our lives. And that conversation has been, in our view, somewhat lost in all of the down in the weeds stuff. So it's so easy to get down in the weeds in any of these things, right? But ultimately, at the end of the day, about why this is a, you know, a question now, is that the question and the question we keep retreating or not retreating to, we keep pulling back to whenever the question comes up, for instance, around what are First Amendment rights on social media? Should anybody be able to say anything they want, including publishing people's addresses in, and uh, advocating violence against individuals, whatever, right? That you have to, we have to decide as a country, and this goes back to where the hope is. We have to decide what country we want to be going forward, right? So I'll, I'll use social media as an example. If, in fact, we are going to say the First Amendment basically allows anybody to say anything, including advocating violence like we saw in the January 6th insurrection or whatever, right? If that's what we want, then you will get the America that we have which is when you ask the question, why is everybody's at each other's throats? Why are we so polarized? That's one of the reasons is that you that you've said, we're going to make a choice for people being able to say anything they want. Oh, and by the way, we're going to amplify all these extreme positions from the left and the right. So they seem like mainstream positions and they're not. They're minority positions, right? So in again, with abortion, with voting rights, with it, we have to re-energize democracy. That's our hope, right? That with vital signs, we can be some part of that. And we're not, at, we're not offering the answers of saying it should be that way. But we should at least ask the question is, what do we want? And once we decide that, then we can have the conversation about how we do it. But the problem for us, for most of us in America, is that we jump right into how to do it. And that conversation not only is polarized, but it's stagnating. 
It means that both sides cancel each other and we have no action one way or another. So one of the stories that's coming out of the midterms, we'll see if this holds up, is that as a result of the split, right? Republicans take the House by even a number of seats. Democrats, the Senate, the Supreme Court has been clear about who, well, they're about ready to be more clear about who they are and the partisan rulings that they've already and will continue to do. And then the presidency is going to be on the docket in two years. If, in fact, that we don't ask the question about what America do we want going forward, do you want it to be easy to vote? Do you want it to have a woman have a right to choose? Do you want to address climate change? Because if you decide that before you get into all how you would do that, then you have a narrative, a template that you can work on. And we would suggest that that, that narrative field is basically being expressed by 65 to 70% of the American people in every poll on every issue, is that there is a block there that says, we won't agree with each other, but we, but we want the conversation to take place within these guardrails. And if, if on one side or the other or both sides, we are now into blown the guardrails into extreme thought, then in a certain sense, uh, when we ask the question, is democracy threatened in America? The answer would be probably. David, I'm struck by the resonance between what you're saying about what's what's crucial here. And one of the key themes of one of our previous guests, Indra Idnan, who is uh, an integralist in, uh, in the UK, in London, and has been uh, a founder of a new... not a a political party, but a political organization looking at how some of these same things, how can people be brought together? And she does a lot of community organizing. And one of the things things she says, which really struck me, was that we never start with what should we do. We always start with asking the question, what kind of world do you want your children to live in? Mm -hmm. And that provides a cohering sense of values and and commonality. And I hear you saying something quite similar here, too. Yeah, because, Roger, the answer to that, right, let's just say we had a group of people, right? And they're just picked randomly, so you're going to get the mix that we have of perspectives that exist in the United States. And you ask that question, what kind of country do we want to have? And if people were being honest, right, about it, which sometimes they will, but more more these days, right? People are not afraid to say what they think. That if a certain portion of that group said, we want the America that was basically run by white people. Hmm. That's what we want. That's what we're comfortable with, right? And that, that doesn't mean that we, we, we want to do anything bad against people of color. They just shouldn't have any power about which direction this country is taking, right? That's what we feel comfortable with, right? That's the story that, Trump is selling, right? That a minority view would basically dictate to the majority what what we should do as as a country. And that's just so un-American. As I said before, that's exactly the opposite of what the founders meant. They meant the majority is able giving giving credit to the minority and saying we need to listen to what you have to say. But ultimately, whether it's Supreme Court justices or it's laws or whatever, the majority is supposed to make the decision. And that's what we live with until the next time it's asked, right? 
And that means it can go back and forth, as we've said, between conservative and liberal thought as it has. But if it blows through and one side or the other or both basically say, we're not going to adhere to that anymore. We just want the world we want. And that happens to be, for some people, I'm really uncomfortable this being a multicultural world where people of color have an equal value and status to me, if they're honest. That I'm really fearful. I'm really fearful about that. Right. So, so, so if if that's the truth, and developmentally we see each of these levels, traditional, modern, postmodern, seeing completely different worlds and and different values, is there any ground for coming together and 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 having some narrative that creates a connective tissue between these different levels that see the world very very differently, so that we can hang in there and compromise and get through these very difficult times. Well, there it was, part two with David Reardon and Deep Transformation. Stay tuned for part three. Today's episode was brought to you by iAwake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation Podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John, Roger, and the Deep Transformation team.